Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. For Reformation Sunday, we always do things a little different than we normally do them. Normally, we're just preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, expository preaching, that's called. But uh, this is a little different. This will be more of a topical sermon. But I want to begin by reading from Romans chapter 1, these well-known verses 16 and 17, as we begin our time together this morning in the Word. Hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word that reveals to us perfectly our God, that that is, is your perfect, holy, living word. And I pray, God, by your spirit working through your word, you would accomplish much among us this morning. Pray, Lord, even souls that are dead in sin would be made to live today. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. A phrase you may or may not be familiar with, post tenebris lux. It's a Latin slogan, summarized the Protestant Reformation some 500 years ago. It means, after darkness, light. The church of Jesus Christ at that time had been in great darkness for about 1,300 years. The clergy had serious issues. I stand before you a weak, sinful man, but they had issues. Many pastors couldn't even read the Bible. Very few understood the true gospel. Many priests of that day had concubines. There were literally orgies in the papal palace. Kids, that just means they ate a lot of food. The sermons were all in Latin, which meant nobody understood them. They didn't know what was being said. You think I'm hard to follow. Salvation was taught to be gained through participation in certain sacramental rituals. In other words, salvation was earned by our religious works. It was not a free gift of God's grace received through faith. Most people were terrified of purgatory to the point that they would pay money they didn't have to try to get their loved ones out of purgatory early. You could purchase that from the Roman Catholic Church. Most people prayed to the saints for everything, believing that that was somehow more effective to go through that kind of mediator, Mary and the saints, rather than going to Christ themselves, because they really didn't believe they had that kind of direct access. Most importantly, the word of God had all but vanished from the church. No one had Bibles. The ones who had them couldn't read them because they were in Latin. It was illegal for them to have it in the languages they could understand because the Roman Catholic Church's official position was the people are too dumb to handle this book. It's far too dangerous. They need us to tell them what to believe and what to do. So they believed that the Pope and tradition, not Scripture, had ultimate 
and final authority. The church was shrouded in great, great darkness. But then God acted. God shone this glorious, blinding light of the gospel. He raised up leaders like Martin Luther, like John Calvin, like Ulrich Zwingli, like John Knox. The list could go on and on and on. These men who trumpeted forth the great doctrines of the Bible at great personal cost to themselves. And what were these great doctrines that they trumpeted forth? Well, I hope if this is your church that you know them well by now. They're known as the five solas of the Reformation. These five doctrines that summarize the the true gospel. And on this Reformation Sunday, we're going to remind ourselves again of these things. But before we do that, it's important for us to recognize our current predicament. Because the American church is also shrouded in great darkness. The prosperity gospel is rampant. It is our number one religious export to other countries. We are killing them. We are destroying them. We are damning them. Similar cult-like groups dominate popular church culture. This morning in churches all across this community, people are singing the songs from cult groups in their churches. They are the most popular songs being sung in churches today. The false religion of social justice and wokeness and critical race theory, whatever name you may know it by, if you know it at all, if you don't know it, count yourself lucky because it has infiltrated, this cancer has infiltrated Christian campuses, your grandkids, your kids in their Christian colleges are being taught these things. They're being taught that the color of your skin, the shade of melanin that you've got determines everything there is to know about you, even if you're a Christian. That Christ alone is not sufficient for that. You must do works of penance, do certain things to free yourself from the guilt you were born into if you're a white person. Many conservative churches have bought this false gospel wholesale people who who we may have once looked up to, people who we would consider conservative, solid voices now proclaiming these lies. Expository preaching is so rare that most Christians not only don't like it, they think it's wrong. We want a motivational speech that gives us goosebumps. It's wrong to open God's word and go through it verse by verse and say, what does it mean and what ought we to do in light of that? There is a famine of the Word of God. There is a famine of biblical preaching. The penal substitution of the cross is denied by many. The whole idea of the wrath of God is rejected as evil and outdated and hateful. The authority of Scripture is slowly being eroded away. More than that, in our day, it's the sufficiency of Scripture that's under attack in Christian churches. Things like critical race theory, things like the social justice movement, make no mistake about it, they are direct attacks on the sufficiency of Scripture. God's Word is not enough. We need these secular, Marxist, atheistic theories to tell us how to deal with one another. After an in-depth study, several scholars and sociologists summarized American Christianity like this a number of years ago. American Christianity is this, therapeutic, moralistic deism. You all know what that means. I'm just kidding. 
Therapeutic is, it's, it's based on this idea, God is our therapist. He wants us to just be our most fully actualized, best and happiest, most contented self. That's all God wants for you, for every day to be a Friday, for you to live your best life now. God's just the therapist in the sky there to make this happen for you. Moralistic just means it's based on a list of do's and don'ts. Here's the rules, folks, follow them. We're saved by being good people. We're saved by meaning well. We're saved by acts of social justice. And deism just means that God is only involved just so much in our lives. Mostly he's standing back. He, he, he responds to our needs, yes. He wants to help us be happy, yes, but he would never judge. He would never discipline This study revealed this is American Christianity, this view of God. Now more than ever, we must recover the great doctrines of the Reformation. We have not outgrown them. The Church of Jesus Christ desperately needs to rediscover these truths or it will be in serious trouble. We're going to look at them this morning. They are so encouraging for us. First is sola scriptura. It means scripture alone is our final authority. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. The Bible is the very word of God. Every word of scripture is fully inspired of God. The accusation will come to churches like ours. You worship the Bible. Nothing could be further from the truth. We worship the God whose word this is. And he has revealed himself in scripture. In scripture we get God. Furthermore though, this is not only breathed out by God, but God cannot lie. So here's what that means. The Bible is without error as the word of God. It's truthful in all that it says. says. The unbelieving world thinks that's stupid. We, on the other hand, say to them we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Since the Bible is God-breathed, it speaks with the very authority of God. Here's what that means. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. To disobey the Bible is to disobey God. Now, at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church taught that tradition, not the Bible, had final authority, had final say. And now, we may look at that and turn our nose up, and we should, but before we point the finger at the Roman Catholic Church, we ought to look in the mirror. What's the final authority for many Protestants? Our own traditions. Popular theologians, popular culture, the claims of science, psychology, maybe above all of it, our feelings. What we just feel is right and feel is wrong. To be honest with you, many of the issues we have in this church is because our final authority is our feelings. But in opposition to all of these false authorities, the word of God is the final, ultimate Authority, no matter how unpopular that makes us in today's world. 
We stand on this truth. Affirming sola scriptura is an all or nothing proposition. You must settle, Christian, this issue in your mind. We also need to consider the very opposite error of the Roman Catholic Church because many Protestant Christians totally ignore tradition to their own peril. Just, just me and my Bible and Jesus and that's it. I don't want to hear from anybody else. I don't want to hear anything else outside of that. It's just me and I'll do what I want. And they may have, have every person they've ever trusted in their lives spiritually, every person that's ever sacrificed for them spiritually be speaking with one voice saying Christians have never believed this they've never done this they've never acted this way there has been one unified voice and that individual says I don't care I just want to know what I feel like Jesus is telling me to do we need to be careful not to make that error as well the Bible must be interpreted in the context of the church of Jesus Christ. That includes church history because the Bible was given by God to the church. We are foolish if we just throw it out. What does sola scriptura mean at Maple Grove Church? Well, one of the most practical things it means is sola scriptura leads to tota scriptura. In other words, we preach the full counsel of the word of God. The best way to do that is expository preaching. We open the Bible and we work our way through it. The, the reason I preach the way I preach is a convictional matter. It's not a matter of convenience. In fact, as we've hit Romans 9, it's not super convenient right now for me. But I'm not willing to skip chapters of the Bible for convenience sake. And so this is why we do what we do. It means, though, Scripture is sufficient for all we need spiritually. It's enough. It's sufficient for preaching. We don't need gimmicks and fancy ideas. It's sufficient for discipling, for growing the Christian. It's sufficient for counseling. It's sufficient for leading the church. And affirming sola scriptura naturally leads to this second truth, Solus Christus. Solus Christus. Christ alone is the only Savior. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The Roman Catholic Church taught that we were saved through the treasury of merit through the work of the priests, through the prayers of the saints, through prayers to Mary, that, that, that there was all this merit that had been stored up by the saints who had gone before us, and it's, and it's out of that treasury that we must draw if we are to be saved. But the, the reformers said, no, it's Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ alone who is the only Savior. He is the only way to God. It is only his merit that will save no one else, nothing else can save, nothing else even contributes in any way to our salvation. All other ways lead only to death and destruction. Our salvation is accomplished by the mediatorial work of the historical Christ. It's in Christ and Christ alone, his sinless life in our place, his substitutionary atonement is the sole basis for our justification, for our right standing with God. 
and for our reconciliation to the Father. He is the only mediator between God and men. And so what that means for us is if, if Christ's substitutionary work has not been proclaimed, if faith in Christ and his completed work has not been called for, then the gospel has not been preached. It doesn't matter how motivational the speech. It doesn't matter how many goosebumps we might get. It doesn't matter how loud our voice gets or how much we stomp around on the stage. The gospel has not been preached if those things have not happened. Jesus is not just one one way. He is the only way. This means no matter how sincere they are, the Muslim, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Mormon, they are lost. Eternally lost. Salvation is only found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means you must have conscious faith in him to be saved. Trusting in his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection. Jesus Christ will not share this saving glory with any other. Not with Allah. Not with Buddha. Not with the teaching of Joseph Smith, the list could go on and on and on. How dare we even include these men or any other in the same sentence with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the one who gave his blood on the cross, who died in our place, who rose from the grave. He is the one who rules and reigns over all things. We dare not consider any other way. And of course, the, the accusation comes. Perhaps if you're here this morning and not a believer, you're thinking this accusation right now. You narrow-minded bigot. You jerk. This claim of Jesus alone, it's so arrogant. It's so narrow-minded. Friend, that would be true if there were other ways. If there were other ways and Christians just said, no, our way is the best way, so we cancel out all your ways, that would be true. It would be arrogant and narrow-minded. But that's not what we believe. The Bible's very clear on this. Jesus himself says in John 14, verse 16, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not just the best way among other ways. He is the only way. Someone has to pay the eternal penalty for our sin and rebellion against a thrice holy God. Jesus is the only one qualified to do it. The only sinless person. The only divine son of God. It is not narrow-minded to believe and to speak the truth. No matter what the world says to you, friend, it is not narrow-minded. Imagine I had a major heart attack while I'm preaching. Perhaps I've used a different example because I've had some things going on recently. Sorry, Andrea. Doing well, feeling strong. Imagine I keel over. It's a major heart attack. I'm rushed to the hospital. Andrea is following right behind. Hopefully one of you has driven her there. Don't make her drive on her own. And the doctor says, we can save him for sure. He needs a heart surgery. And Andrea looks at him and says, no, no, no. Why not a foot surgery? Just operate on his foot. That'll be fine. And the doctor says, no, there is only one way to handle this. And she looks at him with her beautiful brown eyes and says, that's your truth. 
not my truth. It's actually pretty narrow-minded of you to reject my truth in favor of your truth. We sincerely believe a foot surgery is going to fix him. What's a doctor going to say? Your husband is going to die unless I do this one thing. There is one thing. There's one option. Is the doctor being narrow-minded? No, he's being rational. He's being reasonable. If we were in this room and this room was on fire and there were no windows and just the one door and we said, everybody out that door and you said, I'm not going out that door, how dare you? Then you're a fool. It's not arrogant to believe what Jesus taught about salvation. It's arrogant to reject what the sovereign God has done. That's arrogant. It's arrogant to look for another way. Jesus is the only way of salvation because he's the only one that can get the job done. He's the only one that can save. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. The scandal of the gospel is not that there is only one way. The scandal is that there is any way at all. It's all of grace. We, we who are treasonous rebels... Consider what Paul has shown us in the early chapters of Romans, the depth of our sin and rebellion, shaking our fist in God's face. God chose in the midst of our raging against him a great personal cost to himself to send his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came willingly to live for us and to die for us, to forgive our sins and to, to reconcile us to himself, to adopt us into the family of God and a million other blessings that we will still be learning about one billion years from now in glory. And we dare complain, why didn't you give us more options? To quote R.C. Sproul, what is wrong with you people? Has God not done more than enough? Has he not been abundantly kind to us? So we're saved by Christ alone. But how do these benefits of salvation get to us? That brings us to the next sola, sola fide. Faith alone is the means by which we are justified. Justified is just a legal term, justification, to be declared righteous, not guilty. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. What's our greatest need as humans? What's humanity's greatest need? Is it a good job, better wages, a godly spouse, financial security, food, water, clothing, oxygen? No, there's something we need more than all those things combined. Our greatest need is this. How can a rebellious sinner, rightly condemned, be declared righteous by a holy God with that one and only perfect righteousness required for us to come into his presence? How does that happen? How can the lawbreaker who is guilty be justified? 
The Roman Catholic Church said we're justified by faith and by the works we produce, by our effort. Righteousness is, is infused into us as we do these good works. And to that, the reformers, and I might add scripture, say no. Justification is not a process. Justification is a declaration. Righteousness does not come from us. Jesus Christ alone is the basis for our righteousness. We are declared righteous by God even though we are not practically righteous. In other words, we still sin and yet we're credited with Christ's perfect righteousness. So, so though I sin, though yesterday I needed to take my wife by the hand and confess specific sin to her and call out to the Lord so she could hear me, when God looks at me, he sees the perfection of his son. How beautiful is that? How glorious is that? We are justified not by our own merit and righteousness, but by faith alone. And this faith is a gift that God gives to us. It's not a work we produce. It's not something we drum up. Romans chapter 3, verse 27. What then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, the one who wrote that great Reformation battle hymn we sang together this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He was an Augustinian monk, and, and Luther was deeply aware of God's holiness. He was deeply aware of God's justice, and he was equally deeply aware of his own righteousness and his own sin. He would spend hours in the confessional, confessing that day's sin to the point that the confessor would say to him, if you come back tomorrow, come back with something real. I don't have time for this. He, he, would, he would beat his body. He would fast so much that it caused him permanent stomach issues for the entire rest of his life, trying to overcome his unrighteousness in the light of God's righteousness because he so feared it, he knew no one would be allowed to come into God's presence unless they were perfectly righteous, and it drove him to madness. It drove him to despair. Luther would say, when asked if he loved God, love God. I, I hated this God of righteousness because I know that that means he must punish the unrighteous. But as Luther began to study and teach the book of Romans, he came to understand the gospel for the very first time. He came to understand that the justification, right standing with God, is not based on our own righteousness. It's based on something Luther called an alien righteousness. It comes from outside of us, not from inside of us. It's on Christ's perfect righteousness, which is credited to us by faith alone. Not by our works, by trusting. And Luther says this, this Luther who, who was driven to madness and despair and said, I even hated God in my heart because I knew it meant hell for me. He said this, Romans was like the gateway to heaven. This truth of salvation by God's grace through faith alone. And he says, when I understood that, it was as if the door of paradise was opened before me and I walked right in. That's what this truth will do for us. We're justified by faith alone, but why? It brings us to the next sola, sola gratia. 
Salvation is of grace alone, from the first to the last. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. How much more clear could it be? How do we get this faith that saves? It is a gift of God, not the result of works so that no man can boast. Friend, if you contribute one half of 1% to your salvation, you've got room for at least a little boasting. And Paul says that is not how this works. No man can boast. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of works. Grace is favor, freely given to those who deserve judgment. It is a gift. That means it cannot be earned. What does it mean if you earn a gift? It means it's not a gift. You're not overcome with thankfulness when your employer gives you the paycheck at the end of the week that you worked for. You don't say thank you for this grace and kindness you've shown me. You didn't have to do this. No, in fact, if you don't do it, I'm suing you because you owe it to me. Furthermore, then, a gift must be initiated by the giver, not the receiver, for it to truly be a gift. God must be the one who initiates. If the recipient is the one who initiates, it's not really a gift anymore. But God freely gave his son to those who were not seeking this gift. As we saw in the early chapters of Romans, we, in our rebellion, we didn't want salvation. We didn't think we needed it. We weren't seeking it. But God gave it freely. This is the heart of grace. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In verse 19, he says, I chose you out of the world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, you were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked. In verse 4, he goes on, but God, in your deadness, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Luther said, this is the central issue of the Reformation. Are men really dead in their sins, as Scripture says, or are they just badly injured? You see, friends, what Scripture says, it's not that we have fallen overboard and we are in danger of drowning and God needs to throw us a life preserver and we better hold on tight and hope we can make it. Scripture says you are at the bottom of the ocean dead. And God had to reach down, pull you up, make you live. Salvation is all of grace. In theological terms, we would say salvation is monergistic. It's all of God. It's the work of one, not the work of two. We didn't choose God. He chose us. This should humble us. We have nothing to boast in. We have nothing to be arrogant about. We have nothing to turn our nose up at anyone else about. You look at the people in the world who are out there sinning in the most repulsive ways to you, friend, you have nothing over them to boast in. Nothing but Christ. Nothing but his grace. Nothing but his mercy. You don't deserve it more than they do. You're not better than them. 
That's not what, what made God do this for you. What this ensures is God gets all the glory in salvation, all of it, 100%. It brings us to this final sola, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Salvation is all of God. And it has been accomplished completely and perfectly by God. And it is all for God's glory alone. This is the logical conclusion of all the other solas. They all culminate in this one great statement, to God alone be the glory. And it highlights the God-centeredness of the Christian faith. This, this concept that this study brought out that said what the American church is teaching is moralistic, therapeutic deism is the full opposite of the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's the opposite of the true Christian faith, which is not man-centered, it's God-centered. It's about him. It's about his glory. It means we must glorify him always. Our, our lives are meant to be lived for the glory of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He doesn't say if you, if you have a difficult decision and there's the right thing and the wrong thing, do the right thing to the glory of God. He, he brings it all the way down to the most basic necessities of life. In your eating and in your drinking, do that to the glory of God. Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Paul has, has expounded on these great and deep theological truths. We've just gotten into Romans chapter 9, and our study of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are deep water theologically. And Paul doesn't respond at the end of that with a, with a sigh and said, I know I had to say some hard things to you. No, he explodes in praise. The truths of God's sovereign, saving Love, of his choosing, preserving love, lead Paul to this expression at the end of Romans chapter 11 and verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who could have been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all Things to him be glory forever. Amen. God is the one who created us. God is the one who chose us. God is the one who effectively called us to himself. God is the one who gave the Lord Jesus Christ to live and die and rise from the grave. God is the one who justifies us. God is the one who adopts us. God is the one who will preserve us to the end. God is the one that will one day glorify our bodies and bring us to himself for eternity in glory. It is all of God. He gets all of the glory. That's why our primary goal as a church is not to make everyone feel happy. It's not to meet everyone's expectations. It's not to fulfill everyone's 
preferences. It's not to entertain. It's not to attract a crowd. It's not to tug on heartstrings and make sure people get goosebumps. It's not to have people leave here saying good things about us. Our primary goal is to glorify God in all we think, say, and do. That's why we exist. It's now 500 years after the Protestant Reformation. Once again, the Church of Jesus Christ is shrouded in deep darkness. Looking from the outside, things look like they're going well. There are megachurches all over the place. Christian books are regularly bestsellers on the national list. Even at Costco and Sam's Club, they're selling Christian books at discounted prices. Lots of heresy. Worship music is some of the most popular music in the world today. It is a lucrative industry. Steve Lawson is exactly right, though, when he writes this. The evangelical church is largely a whitewashed tomb. Tragically, her outward facade masks her true internal condition. He is 100% right. In a fascinating yet depressing recent study, a scholar listened to four sermons each from nine of the biggest, most popular churches in America, evangelical churches, what we would call Bible-believing churches that believe we ought to proclaim the gospel, take it to the ends of the world, fulfill the Great Commission. Four sermons each from nine of the biggest, most popular churches in America. So he listened to 36 sermons. And he found these four obvious patterns that were in common with every single one of them. Number one, the gospel is at best assumed, he writes. Most of the time it's entirely absent. In 36 sermons, the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection was unclear all 36 times. Often some of these facets of the Christian gospel were entirely left out. Second, repentance rarely comes across as something urgent and necessary. Instead, it is either optional or not worth mentioning at all. Third, many, many of the sermons contained watered-down versions of the prosperity gospel in these churches. He says, if you listened as a visitor, it would be hard not to come away thinking that God wants you to live a happy life full of relational, mental, and emotional wins. That's the message. Fourth, then, he says, the use of the Bible almost always fell into two categories, misuse or abuse. That's the state of the evangelical church in America. That, that what, what, what's presented in this study, what he saw in these, these nine biggest, most popular evangelical churches in the country, that is the dominant, by far dominant, ideology that is driving much of church practice. It's the method that it's being taught by church growth experts. It is the method being taught in our Christian colleges. It is the model being followed by churches all across this country and across this community. This study predated even the outbreak of critical theory that has swallowed churches up in the last two years. This 
false gospel that is being proclaimed that is spreading like a cancer even through the most conservative churches and institutions. This isn't even addressing that. This is just saying nobody preaches the truth anymore in their churches and it's all about meeting our felt needs and making us feel a certain kind of way. That's the state of the American church. It is shrouded in darkness. What should we do, Christians? What do we do about that? What do we do in the light of that? Well, the first thing I would say is this. Don't be arrogant. Don't look at ourselves and go, we're not like them. Thank God for that. We've got it all figured out. No, the first purpose of discernment is to turn that mirror on ourselves and say, where, God, am I guilty? We should pray. We should pray. We should pray that once again into this darkness, God would shine his glorious light. We should pray that God would raise up more Christians with boldness. More Christians willing to be called names for the sake of Christ. Willing to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. We, we don't face the same kind of persecution that these reformers did. Many who gave, gave their lives for the cause of Christ. But there's real persecution if you speak the truth. We should pray that God will raise up Christians who will once again trumpet these five solas of the Reformation, these truths that are lost on much of the church. That Scripture alone is our all sufficient authority. We don't need these outside things. Salvation is through Christ alone, by faith alone. Salvation comes to us by grace alone, that we must live for the glory of God alone. The, the church of Jesus Christ needs to refocus on these great doctrines that once turned the whole world upside down, because they will do it again. We'll give Charles Spurgeon the last word. It's always a good idea to do that. He says this, we want again Luther's and Calvin's and Bunyan's and Whitfield's, men fit to mark eras, whose names bring, breathe terror into our enemies' ears. We have dire need of such. Whence will they come to us? They are the gifts of Jesus Christ to his church and will come in due time. He has power to give us back again a golden age of preachers. When the good old truth is once more preached by men whose lips are touched as with a live coal off the altar, this shall be the instrument in the hand of the Spirit to bring about a great and thorough revival of religion in the land. Amen. He's right. How will God bring this about? It's his word. It's his word proclaimed. His word proclaimed in the pulpits. It's his word proclaimed in the streets. It's his word proclaimed in the homes. God will do this. Luther said of the Reformation when he was asked, how did you do it? How did you change the world? And Luther said, I don't know. I drank a beer and went to sleep and the word of God did the work. It's up to you on the beer part. It's the word of God that will do this. Praise God for, for faithful men 
and women who are rising up to proclaim the word of God in all kinds of settings. Our church is reaping eternal rewards from faithful men and women who stand in front of the most hostile environments where children are literally being murdered and funded by our tax dollars, supported by our government while people yell and spit and curse and threaten and faithfully speak the truth in love. May this church only ever have the word of God faithfully proclaimed from this pulpit for another hundred years. And may God do the work by his word. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, it is a gift. It is a treasure. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to us. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. He will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, Lord, though we look at the the world around us, we look at the state of the church in the United States and around the world, and it grieves us. We do not despair. We will not despair. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Lord, we stand on these truths, these truths that our brothers, our sisters throughout the generations have stood on, lived on, and died on. And we say, Lord, make us faithful, give us steel in our spines, cause us to overflow with humility and grace in love and to speak boldly. For your kingdom's sake, the truth of your gospel, this gospel that saves. May we not be ashamed. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in this church. Lord, let us be a city on a hill. Thank you for the other churches in this community, those who are faithfully proclaiming your truth. We pray you would strengthen and bless them. Those that are not, we pray that you would bring them to repentance quickly. Pray that your name would be glorified in this community and in this state and in this nation and in this world. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.